But the point I'm trying to make is that virtue is not this black and white thing that, you know, you either have it or you don't. It comes in degrees. And that's what Aristotle is trying to say is that you have to practice virtue just like you have to practice anything else. If you don't stand up, then you will habituate yourself to be apathetic and to be, for lack of a better term, a wimp. And these kinds of people get innocent people, mainly their family and friends, into big trouble when the stakes become high. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. This is the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers, a place where we aim to inspire listeners to pursue an intellectual life even if they are never afforded the privilege of higher learning. Part of that life is being able to connect the dots of great thinkers like Aristotle with cultural experiences like Top Gun. Today we aim to do just that. We will discuss the latest Top Gun sequel and use it as a starting point for discussing Aristotle and his theories of habituation and virtue and how boomers and millennials are habituating themselves to weakness rather than strength. Now, let's take the highway to the danger zone or a place for thinkers. That's what our tagline is. Before we get started, though, reminder for those who have questions, I've been asked that where's the best place to send you questions several times. So pretty much anywhere you want. We don't exactly have a million followers on Twitter. So if you tweet at me, I will see it. If you DM me at Solomon's Corner on Twitter, or you can go on Telegram, you can find our Solomon's Corner Telegram channel and ask us questions there. You can even do it on Facebook. My lovely wife will field the questions on Facebook. And if you want to just send it in an email, you can send it at mail at solomonscorner.com, mail at solomonscorner.com. Just got some feedback about a contact page. We are working on that. We are also working on a podcast page that will have the show notes for you guys so that you can get resources from the episodes that we mentioned, like today's Nick and McKeon Ethics. We'll put links on there so you guys can order the books if you would want. Last announcement is that the book club page has been updated, and now we are set to do our next book uh, for book club, which is Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. So if you want to follow along, there is a schedule there. We will have little commentaries and things like that on the tab book club on solomonscorner.com. Once again, that's solomonscorner.com. So one last thing. For those who are clergy in the ACNA, there is a conference you will not want to miss at the Anglican Church of the Redeemer in Chattanooga, Tennessee, September 1st through the 2nd. You can check out the conference at RedeemerChattanooga.org, and you can go and check out the upcoming events. It is formed, F-O-R-M-E-D, and there are going to be some great speakers there. Hans Borsma, Gerald McDermott, Phil Ashey, all talking about the way that we can handle the cultural battles within the Anglican Church and in the culture at large. There's going to be a lot of Q&As, a lot of practical ministry experience. So if you are ordained in the ACNA and you would like to attend, you can go and check out the conference formed for clergy on September 1st through the 2nd in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I will be there, and uh, we will love to see anyone who's listening to this podcast there. So, onward and upward. 
All right, so as I mentioned before, I had the privilege to go see the sequel to Top Gun, or as I affectionately like to call it, Daddy Maverick saves the day at the ripe old age of 59. But before I rag on it too much, I wanted to say you should see it. It's really, really cool. It's an amazing movie, especially in IMAX, and it brings you back to the times when actors actually did stuff to get ready for films rather than just, you know, throw on a CGI suit and green screen the whole thing. But also it reminds you that Americans ought to be Hollywood's primary audience rather than China. They execute everything perfectly. The flight sequences, the acting is solid, the jets are awesome, and the actors really had to act inside the Navy jets. But setting aside the obvious money grab and desire to fly down memory lane, the movie was just fun. However, there's a dark line through the movie. Spoiler alert. I understand it's out just now, but there's a spoiler alert. I'm going to ruin it for you. So if you want to stop now, go see the movie before it's tainted by this podcast. I totally understand. If you want to go down this dark road with me, keep listening. So this dark line reveals a symptom in our culture that has a perpetual adolescence that's encouraged by the older generation and accepted by the younger one. In summary, Top Gun fails to achieve its moral high point, that giving up is hard but necessary. Unless, of course, there is a squadron of little baby millennials that have insecurity problems and are too afraid to push limits of their jets. Well then, Daddy Maverick is just going to have to take point and show these youngsters how it's done at the age of 59. Unrealistic? But that's what they did. If you're scratching your head right now, just, just bear with me. It will make sense in a minute. Let's land the jets for one second and consider the oldest person in Congress right now is 87. His name is Don Young. Guess Alaska doesn't have anyone worthy of the mantle of congressman. Or maybe Alaska doesn't have anyone who wants it. Diane Feinstein, California, is 87. Chuck Grassley of Iowa is 87. There are over 400 seats in Congress. How many seats is it actually? Is it like total? There's 469 seats in Congress. And 192 of them are over the age of 60. But it's not just in politics. In many arenas of life, the older generation does not consider passing the baton and challenges to the next generation. If you take Congress or you take the politics just as an example, we live in a digital age. Now, most people that I know at the age of 60 do not know very well how to use technology. And yet that's what our entire government functions on. How are these individuals going to understand the importance of outdated computer languages or just have an overall sense of how things ought to be developed? The younger generation does, but the younger generation has to be willing to take risks that the older generation had the opportunity to take and made them the leaders that allow them to sit in these seats until they're literally almost 100 years old. But even in other areas, actors, politicians, ministry leaders, they should be settling down and establishing their predecessors, but instead they desire to do one last mission, just like Daddy Maverick. And yes, I'm going to refer to Tom Cruise's character as Daddy Maverick through this whole episode. They hope that they will die trying on this last mission. It seems the greatest fear that the boomers is being succeeded by their offspring, while millennials' greatest fear is responsibility. Now, there are exceptions to this rule, but an exception doesn't mean that the rule doesn't exist. In fact, it's an exception precisely because of the rule it exempts. So many people will say, ah, but Daniel, there's an exception to that generalization you just made. 
Yes, there always will be. But this brings us back to the sage, the older, wiser pilot who teaches, flies experimental jets, and steps in to take the next generation's moment for himself because they are too damn weak to do it themselves. In the film, before you feel like I'm being a little too hard on old Cruise, just understand that Maverick, Tom Cruise's character, is told by his old rival, Iceman, played by Val Kilmer, via artificial intelligence, which they actually used to replicate his voice from years of film prior to this film, so that he could actually talk. Now, granted, it's kind of, you know, well, I'm not going to spoil it for you because that is a pretty cool scene. But he essentially tells Mav that he needs to let go, meaning Maverick needs to let go. And with misty eyes, Maverick says, I don't know how. Then, like 20 minutes later, not even joking, Maverick has a fallout with a squadron and decides that he's going to hijack a jet and prove that he can beat the mission simulator and do it even faster than what he has the recruits to do. Now, keep in mind that there's blackouts and physical stress on the body, and Daddy Maverick is going to just endure it all for his little squadron flock. So he decides to fly this jet faster. And this is Maverick we're talking, not Chris Evans's Captain America. And with a gleam in his eye, the young millennial pilots say, Thank you, Daddy Maverick, for taking our spotlight. It's okay, guys. We're going to be safe because Daddy Maverick is flying with us. Woohoo! By the end of the movie, though, you're half expecting an end credit scene where Maverick's character is going to walk into a room and find Nick Fury trying to recruit him for the next Avengers film. At this point, you're probably like, I thought we were going to talk about Aristotle. And we are. And what does this all have to do with Aristotle? Virtue. So how does one become virtuous? One thing is for sure. You don't just ask Daddy Maverick to help you fight the bad guys or do your mission for you, which is the problem with the movie. At its core, the younger pilots never have their trial by fire moment and are robbed of their opportunity for virtue. Instead, the movie is concluded with an old seagull, pun intended, taking his adopted son, Rooster, that's a play on words. He's not really adopted. It's just, you know, put air quotes around that. He takes Rooster up for one more go while he literally sits Rooster in the back seat of the jet. And Rooster is cheering on Daddy Maverick against all odds. Literally impossible odds. <laughs> How does one acquire the virtue of courage, leadership, wisdom, if not by habit and experience? But if Daddy Mavericks of the world never step out of the way for the next generation to learn lessons from the terrors of real battlefields, then eventually when the mavericks of the world are gone, the roosters will be unfit, conquered, taken captive, led into poverty, slavery, and death. That may seem like a bit melodramatic, but that's what history tells us. When good men refuse to raise up other good men, evil men will prevail. So fortunately for maverick and rooster, though, Hollywood wrote their stories, and the laws of virtue and consequence clearly don't apply. Apparently, neither do other branches of the military with superior air power. Hashtag we own the skies. Hashtag go Air Force. It's for my friends out there in the Air Force, Dr. Brian Huffling. Now, this brings us to Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which is one of two of his books on the science of virtue. I can't remember what the, what the other one is called, but everybody pretty much gravitates towards Nicomachean Ethics. Very readable. Highly recommend it, especially especially if you are a pastor or somebody who's looking to just kind of 
dive into philosophy in general, but pastors especially, it's a great book because it shows you how to think critically about virtues you might take for granted. Now, for Aristotle, there are two kinds of virtue. Virtue of thought, which is primarily through education and time, and virtue of character, which was acquired through habit or practice. For the purposes of this podcast and carrying on with the theme of taking opportunities from Rooster to habituate himself, we're going to talk about virtue of character and how habit helps us acquire better character. So, Aristotle writes, Virtue of character results from habit or practice. It is also clear that none of the virtues of character arises in us naturally. For something is by nature in one condition, habituation cannot bring it into another condition. So the virtues arise in us neither by nature nor against nature. Rather, we are by nature able to acquire the virtues, and they are completed through habit. So we are not by nature good or virtuous. This lines up with scripture for many of the Christian listeners out there, but it also just is the case that you are not naturally virtuous. You have to learn virtue. And we're not going to get into all the details of how that happens in this. And even Aristotle, when he starts off Nicomachean Ethics, asks for the reader to just grant that these principles will be addressed later in terms of how we learn to acquire virtue. One of the ways is through reason. But for our discussion, notice that Aristotle has arrived at a conclusion that's pre-New Testament, where he recognizes, first, that we are not virtuous by our own nature, and second, that it must be acquired through practice. This means that when people rob you of the opportunity to exercise your virtue, like in the movie Top Gun, they are handicapping you morally and making you morally anemic and furthering you towards a disposition of vice rather than virtue, or in more technical terms, being good or being bad. There is not really a middle ground in this discussion. Those who fail to acquire virtue will tend towards vice, and this is echoed by Christ as well. You can be hot or cold, but you can't be lukewarm. Oh, and for those who are curious, this is book two in Nicomachean Ethics. And so now that doesn't mean that it's separate books, but just as an aside, the way the book is broken out is book one, book two, book three. And you can find this section that we're primarily laser focused in on, like a laser targeting system on Daddy Maverick's jet is book two. So Aristotle continues, we acquire virtues just as we acquire crafts by having first activated them. For we learn a craft or a trade by producing the same product that we must produce when we have learned it. We become builders, for instance, by building, and we become harpists by playing the harp. We become good wives by submitting to our husband. I'm just kidding. It's not in there. But similarly, then, we become just by doing just actions, temperate by doing temperate actions, brave by doing brave actions. In other words, virtue is acquired by degrees. You can't just go out there and decide, I'm going to be Russell Crowe's gladiator. Maximus is my name. I shall be courageous. That's not going to happen, and you'd be a fool to try. All of us are in different phases of life. We have different responsibilities. We cannot all obtain the same virtues in the same way. A soldier who enlists to put food on the table for his family will have to overcome his fear of guns and draining, meaning 
the man has to, via practice with guns, overcome his fear by facing it. A pastor who has the call of God on his life, but has a fear of speaking, will have to overcome this fear by practicing speech. And if he fails, either for fear or lack of faith, on God's call, he will fail to obtain the good God has intended for his life, which is objectively better, by the way, than lacking it. Virtue is taught. This is another principle that Aristotle comes to. Kids do not know virtue by themselves, because again, this is not something that comes with your humanity package deal, so to speak. Just like when you're born, you have eyes, you have a mouth, you, have, you can speak. Those things come with what it means to be human. But virtue is a potential in us. It's not something that we just have. You're not just naturally courageous or naturally faithful. You have to practice it. Aristotle argues that in order for us to become virtuous, we have to learn it. Now, you will hear a lot of pastors use the analogy of, so you think we're all inherently good, huh? Well, have you ever seen a child try and play with another child? If we left them alone, they'd rip their hearts out. And they act like this is the first time that it's ever been said. But in actuality, Aristotle said it first, and this was way before Jesus ever walked the earth or any seminary was built. But furthermore, as Christians, we are expected to walk in the Spirit and manifest these virtues. Just as Joshua was expected to be courageous, so are we. But if we are not provided with a gradual increase of experience and opportunity for failure or success, then the potential for virtue will be stymied. And this is what Aristotle says next. What goes on in the cities is also evidence of this, meaning the teaching of virtue. For a legislator makes the citizens good by habituating them, and this is the wish of every legislator. If he fails to do it well, he misses the goal. Correct habituation distinguishes a good political system from a bad one. Further, the sources and means that develop each virtue also ruin it, just as they do in a craft or a trade. It is the same, then, with the virtues. For what we do in our dealings with other people makes some of us just and some unjust. What we do in terrifying situations and the habits of fear or confidences that we acquire makes some of us brave and others cowardly. The same is true of situations involving appetites and anger, for one or another sort of conduct in these situations makes some temperate and others mild, others intemperate and others irascible. To sum it up in a single account, a state of character results from the repetition of similar activities. And irascible means that you can't control your desires. Just little uh, esoteric words there. Getting your vocabulary up. Now, what we're trying to say here is that virtue is a state of being. It's a way that you are. But it's not the way that you were when you started. So a way that you are once you have habituated yourself to virtue is what we mean. Now, in our rationalist society, especially biblical fundamentalists, we tend to think of this as perfection, like you can't be virtuous unless you're perfect. It's important to understand that this is not what Aristotle has in mind, nor is it reasonable to conclude this in reality, meaning even if Aristotle did think this, I don't think that that's accurate. What we are speaking of here is what we might call today instinct. When a police officer retires at 25 years on the force, he has had a share of dangerous encounters. He has had his fair share of failure and successes that have made him, quote-unquote, the man he is today. Now, suppose he is at your church, and a violent man enters, ready to blow the place to bits. 
Without thinking, the former police officer draws his firearm and his training kicks in and the quote-unquote state of courage he has acquired during his years as a police officer is activated and he acts bravely without further prompting education or training. He is courageous. Now, in spite of his failures or other vices that he may have acquired on the force, he has courage and acts on it. Now, if he had been a coward on the police force, if he had been someone who never learned how to use his firearm or actually live out the, the meaning of police officer and the virtues required to do it, then he wouldn't be able to act this way. But the point I'm trying to make is that virtue is not this black and white thing that you know you either have it or you don't. It comes in degrees. And that's what Aristotle is trying to say, is that you have to practice virtue, just like you have to practice anything else. You can't be the best builder in the town unless you practice building. You're going to have to start small and little projects and move your way up. And others might have more of an affinity for it because maybe they had a dad who taught them how to do it like I did. Or maybe they are further behind because they didn't have any parents to teach them and they had to learn through actually living in vice that virtue was the better way to go. But this leads us to the next thing, calling good evil and evil good. So now suppose that we are habituating ourselves to vice. What kind of state would we be in if we habituated ourselves to evil or vice? It's just a fancy word for evil. Well, we may desire our own good before we desire anyone else's good, but should this go unchecked, we will become a vicious person. Our character, our state of virtue, would become vicious. A white lie turns into several, and the several, require, the several lies require a big lie. And before you know it, you're shooting up heroin, holding a gun in your hand, looking for the next bank to rob to pay off your ex-wife and drug dealers. You're just not sure which one's going to kill you first. Or maybe you end up like Rooster in the backseat of a jet being flown around by a retirement age pilot while fifth generation fighters try to shoot you out of the sky. Either way, vice is not something you want to habituate yourself to, either good or evil. What you decide will incline your heart towards virtue or vice. So Aristotle, continuing this theme, says, abstaining from pleasures makes us become more temperate or have more self-control. And once we become temperate, we are most capable of abstaining from pleasures. It is similar with bravery. Habituation or practice in the disdain for frightening situations and in standing firm against them makes us become brave. And once we have become brave, we shall be most capable of standing firm. Now, Jordan Peterson, I'm a big fan. He also has echoed this idea of what he calls micro-retreats, or what we might call in this context micro-tyrannies. And he's echoed a similar sentiment to Aristotle around the psychology of authoritarian and tyrannical regimes, specifically around how people like you and me end up giving rise to those regimes. If you give in to micro-tyrannies, meaning, let's say, some sort of just minor infraction on your, your freedoms at work, or you know maybe you know, you're not allowed to use the coffee maker after 9 o'clock, just some arbitrary rule from HR because they just want to make life miserable for employees. 
let's say you just decide not to, you know, everybody's not happy about it, and you just decide to say, well, it's not that big of a deal, I'll just comply. Then the next day they say, you know what, no coffee, you know, at the office anymore, you have to drink before you come in. And then you're like, well, that kind of sucks, but I don't want to lose my job, and it just continues to escalate and escalate until finally we're at a point where it's really, really bad. And what th- it seems like a micro-tyranny, although at this point no one really sees them as micro-tyrannies because they never thought it would get this bad, you find yourself in a docile position, just completely pathetic sheep. And as a result of your micro-tyrannies not being addressed in your workplace, the workplace becomes more and more less hospitable, and now all of a sudden you're like, you know what, maybe I'll just leave. Maybe I'll just go to another job. What Aristotle would say, and what what Jordan Peterson would say, is that when you take a stand because of something that seems insignificant, and you do it in a winsome way, when the risks are low, that's practice for you to take a stand when the risks are high, when the fear is so thick that it causes you to lose your judgment. And so returning back to this idea of micro-tyrannies, if you don't stand up, then you will habituate yourself to be apathetic and to be, for lack of a better term, a wimp. And these kinds of people get innocent people, mainly their family and friends, into big trouble when the stakes become high. And you can read about this and I've said it before, but you can read about this in Gulag and other books, Victor Frankl, all these different books about how people who thought it would never get that bad were wrong, and the people who suffered most were the families. Now, watching the apathetic person evolve during the time we're in now has been terrifying, meaning from the start of pandemic, but also before that to the redefining of marriage. That's really where it started for me to start seeing people kind of evolving into this more apathetic and complaining about things the way they are, but not really doing anything about it. And I was guilty too. There were a few of us, though, sounding the alarm saying, what are you talking about? How can you change the definition of marriage and think that things are just going to carry on like they always have? Their response was, it's not that bad. You're overreacting. Sadly, Many Christians responded this way too. And now, 10 years later, we can't even answer the question, what is a woman, without risking our jobs? Or even if you're somebody who's going to the highest level of the court. Now, these people who have been evolving into more of an apathetic position, their response is, okay, it's really bad, but now what do you want me to do? It's so bad that nothing I do will make a difference. No matter what angle you take it at, people were habituating themselves not to do anything. When it didn't seem like it was going to be bad, it was just going to blow over, people decided to not do anything. The coffee maker example, just, well, it's not going to be that big of a deal. HR is not going to do anything crazy. And then before you know it, now they're saying, hey, you need to say your pronouns are Z and Zer. And that seems like a big deal to you, but the stakes are really high. And after all, you've given in so many times now, what's one more time? So the question is, what are you supposed to do? Stand up for your bad, stand up against your bad habits, whatever that means in your situation. Now, we're not going to get into 
what Aristotle calls the mean and relative wisdom in this podcast, but we will later down the road because this theme is going to come up, especially when we decide to talk about interpretation of the Bible and virtue in one of our podcasts down the road that I have planned. But for now, your stance is to begin habituating yourself to the virtues you believe that God wants us to have, to practice them, whether that be you know, un- a loving and unflinching uh, respect for your colleagues, but not compromising on your values, meaning lovingly telling them, yeah, I can't affirm you in your transgenderism. Maybe that's not wise, and you need to figure out something else you can do. Or it's being silently obstinate and taking that stand without doing anything. Maybe it's not going to the diversity and inclusion meetings. Maybe it's being silently obstinate and choosing not to go along as a proxy for propaganda. Regardless, be intentional about the virtues you wish to acquire. If you read Nicomachean Ethics, read about some of them and try to acquire them. You're not going to acquire them all, but sit there and say, you know what? I want to practice this. I want to try and do this. You're going to make mistakes, but you can learn from those mistakes. And as Christians, we know that even in our mistakes, God can use those for good. So learn what these virtues look like. And when the opportunity presents itself to act, don't turn it down. A little story, a friend of mine called me earlier this year and told me that his work had mandated the vaccine. He had wished he had stood strong, but he didn't. Regardless of the efficacy of the vaccine, though, as an aside, the efficacy of the vaccine does not have relevance here. The point is, rather, the ethics and values that were perpetuated during the pandemic in our fear of death and how we decided to exchange our lives for a little more security. My friend wishes he would have, he would have stood up to this, but he didn't. Others in my life complained but ultimately went along with the employer mandates, knowing their conscience, knowing in their conscience, something was deeply wrong with the compliance that they were being forced to give into. Others, not so much. Some were afraid of their family rejecting them. They were worried that their family would blame them for the death of a grandparent for not getting vaccinated. Now, those who downplay these kinds of psychological pressures have either forgotten about how evil countries can become this way and that it's our resolve not to comply that prevents that evil from ever being attained. When we choose not to comply, that's how these potential evils, these good intentions that lead to evil, end up being blocked from attaining their truly wicked ends that even the persons who were responsible for them getting there never foresaw. And we'll come back to this story of my friend in a minute. But to continue this theme of psychological pressures and how do you prevent tyranny and cruelty and genocides and all this stuff, when I was a kid growing up, World War II was everywhere. The video games we played, Call of Duty famously made it so that you could experience what the beaches of Normandy were like digitally. And the question was always, how did this happen and how do you prevent it from happening? The ethical dilemmas I can remember since I was a kid. Well, if you're a Christian, would you lie to the Nazis if you were hiding Jews in the basement? After all, God says you're not supposed to lie. And these kinds of 
discussions happened in church, in school. Everybody really talked about them. It wasn't unusual. Conveniently, though, what we didn't realize was that the more pernicious evil was communism. But the communists have done a good job of hiding the ball on their political and demonic philosophies. It's not like we didn't learn our lessons from World War II. We did. Let's take a look at the first line of the Nuremberg Codes for some context for some of the well-justified compliance that we had in the last two years. Point one of the Nuremberg Codes, and this is from the Holocaust Museum of History. Let me pull up the exact. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. You can find this on their website, and I'll post it in the show notes. Point one says, the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means, and I'm quoting here, that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision. This latter element requires that before the acceptance of an affirmative decision by the experimental subject, there should be made known to him there should be made known to him the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment, the method and means by which it is to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected, and the effects upon his health or person which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. Now, people are going to say, well, this wasn't an experimental drug. Well, if you need emergency authorization, yes, it is. And there are plenty of experts out there who will say this. If the emergency authorization goes out the window, you can't get this thing anymore. So the problem is, is that when we came into this pandemic, we did exactly what we were habituated to do, to just give in, complain a little bit, but just give in. After all, it's not that big of a deal. But some people felt the sting in their conscience. And the reason why there was an unsettled air about the COVID pandemic and the power grabs that ensued was that the lying was blatantly occurring in front of us and power was being abused. Pfizer famously wanted to wait 50-some-odd years before they released any of the trial data. They had to file a FOIA request for it, and they still tried to block it. Professors who had been working at university for 20 years were terminated simply because they would not get a shot. Ironically, this was an ethics professor who took a stand. And as a person interested in philosophy who studied philosophy under philosophers, I've had professors who have ethics as their training, and she had ethics as her training, but she is now the teacher that I definitely want to sit under because she didn't just study it, she lived it. Now, you might be saying, but, you know, she wasn't coerced. Well, if you're losing your job and not getting the shot, then that is definitionally coercion. It's, you do not do this, then this will happen. And conveniently, for those on the far left, Many who would use their positions of institutional power to oppose the left were terminated for not complying. Now, you might say, that's a conspiracy theory. Well, does it really matter if it's conspiracy theory, if it worked out for the left in the end? 
Maybe they didn't even realize it was happening. Either way, they're happy that these people are no longer influencing students in the university. Were these dissenters courageous or fools? The fools of our generation will say, time will tell, because they ultimately use utilitarian ethics, meaning, well, as long as it works out for them, then it was the right thing. Really? As long as it works out for them, then they made the morally right choice? Was Jesus right to die for us only because he rose from the dead? Is it really only the case that if somebody's going to go to heaven, that it's virtuous for them to lay down their life for their neighbor? Based on what we know from history and the lessons from those who faced an early death due to the political ideas that subjected virtue to utilitarian science, those who took a stand, no matter how small or big, against mandates, LGBTQ information, or Marxist CRT ideas, and suffered for it, are now better for it. These are the ones who do not merely study the truth. They live it. It is a part of them. It is something that they've obtained. Not in the salvation sense, but in the ethical sense. Aristotle describes it this way. It is right, then, to say that a person comes to be just from doing just actions and temperate from doing temperate actions. For no one has the least prospect of becoming good from failing to do them. The many, however, do not do these actions. They take refuge in arguments, thinking that they are doing philosophy and that this is the way to become excellent people. They are like a sick person who listens attentively to the doctor, but acts on none of his instructions. Such a course of treatment will not improve the state of the sick person's body, nor will the many improve the state of their souls by this attitude to philosophy. Here at Solomon's Corner, we are trying to inspire people to not just study philosophy, but to live it, to obtain the virtues that these books and these great minds that God's blessed us with have imparted to us and that they can be obtained and made a part of who we are. And as Christian thinkers, especially, that we look at how this can help us understand a deeper understanding, not a Gnostic special secret knowledge, because anyone can attain this knowledge, but a knowledge that helps us be wise in the way that we wield our swords of the Spirit, so to speak, the Bible, the way that we come to understand how God intended for us to live and how dark the world really is. And so, for those that failed to take a stand against the ideological or med medical tyranny that we are experiencing in recent years. Don't despair. As C.S. Lewis says in his book Perlandra, book two of the sci-fi trilogy, God can use it for good, but the loss is real. You did fail. You didn't do a good job, but that doesn't mean you have to give up. We are in a cultural and political, i.e. spiritual battle, against dangerous ideas that would seek to pervert what is good and raise the cost of virtue to martyrdom. Don't give up. Don't believe that you are worthless for your failure. Instead, learn from your mistake. There are going to be plenty of chances in the future to take stands for what you know to be right. Start small. Stop affirming people's bad ideas. 
practice being winsome, even if only a tiny bit at first. Develop your conscience through study of God and man. Prepare for the next stand. Do this by seeking God while he can be found. Revere him and fear him more than man. For this is the beginning of wisdom. So before we go today, we got our first question from Paul. He says, I've been on both sides of the industry, large and small. If we stop buying products because a company sells it, but that same company owns several different companies, do we stop buying from all those companies? In the same line of thinking, if I or anyone has a job for a corporation, no matter the size, wouldn't it stand to reason that rather than leaving said corporation because you disagree with what they stand for, stay where you are so you can be a light and make a difference? We just hired a homosexual as well as a pansexual or whatever that is. Do I leave because I disagree with that? I think that going and starting a business where I can protect myself from this stuff is dangerous. It does keep me from that, but it also keeps me from ministering to those people. Protecting your family is number one, but I think to use your example of Disney, it would be awesome to work there, not because of the rides, although that would be cool, but because of the chance to be a light in a dark place. Those people need Jesus too. So now that I've plattered you to the wall with my thoughts, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Five stars, by the way, wherever that goes. Well, you can do it on the Apple Podcasts. That is the best place to leave the review. So that's the first question. But there's two questions in here. And the first one is uh, about boycotting. And everybody recognizes that boycotts do not work, which obviously leads us to the question of why do them? Like we were talking about earlier, this assumes that the only time you should do what is right is if it results in the outcome that is pragmatic or practical, the thing that you want to have happen. Too many times people who boycott think that, well, I'm doing this because it's going to take down Amazon or it's going to take down Target or whatever. Now, there might be some truth to that in the sense if you get enough people to actually raise a ruckus, then maybe those companies will change. But generally speaking, in this climate, that's not going to happen because the other side has already gotten so much momentum that it's going to be hard to counter that in any way that's meaningful. So the question, again, is why should you not buy from company A if they're supporting abortion or if they're doing these kinds of things if you can't make a difference in what their behavior is going to be? Well, this gets into what we're talking about today. You might not be able to make a difference at Amazon, but deciding for a time to not buy from said company or not do business with this other company, that does habituate you in some way. It does give you a chance to practice in a small way resisting groups that don't come in line with your values. So in the Anglican tradition and any other major global tradition of Christianity, there's a time called Lent. I recommend to people that maybe for Lent, you decide that you're not going to buy from a company that you know does not support your values. Then you can say, when people ask you, so what did you give up for Lent? You can say, well, I decided to stop buying from Amazon because they don't support my values. And I wanted to remind myself that this is a fight that's worth fighting. And that can be the beginning. So it's, it's more about what it's going to do to you in terms of virtue than it is about how it's going to impact the company. That's, the first, that's to answer the first question. Uh, you shouldn't boycott because you want to destroy you know, your neighbor's business. The goal would be that you want them to change. And, and that they'd continue to give great products. The second question was about leaving and starting a business. And I agree with you that there is an argument here to be said about being lights in dark places. And I don't think everybody should just 
up and leave their work. However, I do think that the question is a little bit misleading because it makes the evil we're talking about seem a little less vicious than it actually is and makes it sound like it's kind of not going to have the negative impact on culture that we would assume it will. Transgenderism is on the rise. Just saw an article the other day that more than like an additional 40% or a significant number are now identifying as trans. These kids will never will never come back from from this. Um <clears throat> the idea that all sins are equally bad before God is true, but the fact that all sins have the same amount of consequences on people and society is not. And so for example, I could say, well, maybe you should go work for planned parenthood so you could be a light in that place and so, and they would be using your labor to murder children. Obviously, in this extreme example, that is not justification to go take the gospel as an employee into those dark places. Similarly, you're not being a very good light if you decide to go work for a place like Disney and decide, well, I'm going to work on the Buzz Lightyear episode and make this same-sex kiss scene for kids the best that I can. Because, you know, there's a Bible verse out there that says, do the best job that you can so people will look at your good works and praise God. Well, how are you going to do that making, you know, homosexual propaganda that goes directly against your values. So all that being said, there's obviously a limit to where you can work based on the values of the business. So we have to start there. Now, a person is going to have to decide where God wants them to be based on what God calls them to live like. And if you cannot live the way that God wants you to live, then you have to consider whether or not you're where you're supposed to be using your your gifts and abilities and talents for a company that wants to see your faith and your culture and your values completely destroyed. For example, it would be a little bit odd for Jews to work for the Nazi military in genociding their culture and people simply because they wanted to be a good example of how good Jewish people can be in a dark time. So, in, in conclusion to the question, we really have to talk about what the company is and whether or not it is something that is actively undermining your values or if it's jobs that go against your conscience. A lot of people want to use Babylon as an example to say, well, we're in Babylon and Daniel and the, you know all these guys had to work for the king, yet they were forced to do that. In America, we are not in Babylon yet. There are millions of Christians in this country and lots of businesses and nonprofits and other places where people can go and work. Not everybody can, but being intentional about where you work and why you work there is part of, again, habituating yourself towards who God wants you to be and how he wants you to live. And again, I'm not saying that you should leave your work because you have to work with a, with a gay person. But I will say that I think that people who decide to work with transgender employees and comply with speech codes in their work are not doing anything good for society. They're not doing anything good for themselves. And they're sinning against God because they're complying with a lie. So I think that we have to understand that we have to be wise in this time but a person who decides to stay at a workplace and say, yeah, I'm not going to participate in this stuff. I'm not going to do that. 
and they still have a job, yeah, stay there. Keep keep making an impact because your presence there is going to make an impact. The problem is, is that people confuse making an impact with compliance, and that's not going to make an impact. To go along with the propaganda, to say, well, you know, it's okay because, you know, after all, I'm just trying to make sure I don't offend anybody, that is antithetical to the gospel. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible as a prescription for godly living or evangelism. When Jesus went to people and talked with the prostitutes and all those people, he told them to stop sinning. And he told the disciples, if you go into these towns and they don't want to hear from you, shake your dust off on, their, on, those, on those homes and it will be better for them to have basically been in Sodom and Gomorrah than to be where they are right now, rejecting the gospel. So the idea that we're supposed to just be loving and kind and all this kind of stuff is true but not at the expense of the truth. We're supposed to lovingly talk about the truth. We're supposed to make sure that, you know, yeah, if you want to fire me, I understand. God's going to take care of me, and I'm going to keep praying for you. That's the Christian response. And if God allows somebody to continue making an impact in a big company or something like that, where they can have Bible studies and they can make a difference in the lives of those employees without suffering termination, they should do that. But they shouldn't compromise their values. They shouldn't compromise their faith in order to keep their job. That is not what God wants us to do. And that's not what any of us who are wanting to live a virtuous and integrous life should do. So that's our first question. Thanks for asking it, Paul. I really appreciate it. I hope that everybody else will do what you did and uh, ask the questions. Again, if you guys can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that is the place to do it. Um, if you need help figuring out how to do that, I will gladly walk you through that. So feel free to message me or email me, and I will help you get that whole thing written up and put on the Apple Podcast. So without further ado, that concludes today's episode of Solomon's Corner. I'm Daniel Roberts, and don't forget, keep thinking. <laughs>